I guess I'm becoming more of a crank, sort of a cranky usability guy. I think that something happens as you get older, your love of good design is gradually, incrementally replaced by a hatred of bad design, which is slightly different. Hello, Spacers from Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. And today's show, I'm talking with Scott McLeod. Scott is the creator of the 80s comic book Zot, which won a Jack Kirby Award for the brand new series. He's the author of a comic that explains, well, the medium that is comics as a comic book called Understanding Comics, which won an Eisner Award. His latest graphic novel, The Sculptor, came out in 2015 with Sony quickly buying the movie rights shortly after its release. Before we get started with the show, some notes on where I'll be and some word from our sponsors. First up, CSS Summit. It's the three-day virtual conference event. It focuses on CSS, SaaS, and super friend technologies like SVG, animation API, design systems, JavaScript task runners, and so much more. You can ask questions directly to speakers, to colleagues. Uh, recordings are free when you re- register. So in case you miss a session or miss a day due to work or what have you. So definitely buy your tickets now at CSSSummit.com. Uber has given me the opportunity to give you new riders a $25 credit towards your first Uber ride. Sign up at HTTP colon slash slash Christopher.org slash Uber to claim your credit. Also be sure to see us at CSS DevConf in San Antonio, Texas this October. You can buy t- tickets at cssdevconf.com. You'll be able to see Chris Coyer, Jonathan Snook, Rachel Andrew, and a whole bunch of people we've heard on the show, and much, much more. It's a really great way to get energized and see where the industry is growing. So that's going to be in mid-October. And check it more out at cssdevconf.com. Also, you can set it, forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. So when a new episode is ready, you can have it show up directly in your inbox signing up at newsletter.notbreakingspace.tv. As always, you can find show notes and links discussed in today's episode, and there are a lot of things we discussed in today's episode, at notbreakingspace.tv. That's where you find all the links. Uh, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Teleject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, thank you for subscribing, liking, and telling others about Nonbreaking Space Show on iTunes. Also, want to let you know that we're also on TuneIn, if you happen to use that app, to search for Not Breaking Space Show. But now, on with the show. Well, thank you for making time to be My pleasure. Be part of this. So, yeah. Last time we t- I saw you, you were in Austin doing the book tour for, oh, yeah, yeah. for the book and for the sculptor. How, how is that going? How, how you're still, I still feel like this is like the You're still part of the book tour. So, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well it's now been what is it about a month and three or four months since it came out uh, excuse me a year, a year and three, and three or four months, months yeah. since it came out so uh i've certainly quieted down you know i'm going <laughs> back to work on the next book but yeah the book is still out there it's it's already in 12 languages wow and uh yeah it's still moving about for a big fat hardback you know we're still we're still moving copies so it's 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 kind of nice and um you know we'll we'll see what happens with the with the movie which is uh still you know kind of a going concern as a possibility but right. you know how hollywood is god only knows if it'll actually <laughs> ever get made but yeah. but that process has indeed begun just in case oh, nice. yeah 
Okay, great. Well, that's awesome because you, uh, as, as I also know, because you, we've talked before, you are a movie fan and you, yeah. you will watch a lot of movies, uh, which is great. And uh, because you've, as in the 80s, you created Zot, right? Yeah, that's right. right. Zot, and then, um, which is a great, great story. I recommend people uh, buying buy buy it, uh, the back issues. And so there was talk about you said, like, hey, why don't you just, you know, I just like, me like in, in this decade like hey why don't you make a movie as odd you're like yeah <laughs> <laughs> like, actually <laughs> yeah i've i've said no to a few people over yeah. the years yeah. there have been like four or five um sort of entreaties to to make a zot movie and yeah. each time you know sometimes i'll get pretty close sometimes i'll just wave them away but mm. um for one reason or another it never looked like the right opportunity right. And that's one of the things like i learned about you was just like you like if it's if it doesn't feel, feel right or if it's not going to be right you like you just like nah i'd rather not do it yeah yeah right. so, kind so. of picky that way i guess yeah <laughs> cool um since we're on top of like, movies any let's give you uh any movies that you liked recently i just want to just put that out there actually the movie i can't get out of my head i didn't necessarily like and it was the lobster the lobster oh i love the lobster <laughs> i love the lobster yeah it was really it was really grim though i ivy uh i went with ivy and our friend Berkey, and mm-hmm. and we were just joking about it all the way home how it was uh, kind of wasn't always user friendly, um, but but one of the most important measures for a movie is whether or not I can't stop thinking about it for days or weeks or months afterwards. And so far, it's 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 doing pretty well. Yeah, because I I have a lot of trouble getting some of those images out of my mind. But um, just I, this is a spoiler, so like turn it down, anyone who's listening. But uh, but you know we should have consulted. Does the dog die? Yeah. you know you know that very useful site yeah oh yeah that's, oh that's usually a deal breaker with oh, yeah. uh, my wife oh geez yeah oh man that's dang it oh man but you're, some, you're, you're, yeah. you're bringing back some memories now so i thought but i put that one aside but yeah yeah it's probably wise yeah yeah i saw that that was um uh we went to a film festival here in austin for the first time it's called uh fantastic fest uh-huh. and it's a genre film festival and that was the keystone, I guess, if you will, like of the of the festival, and so I had never heard of it, and it was, it was like September last year, and I was just like, but uh, the person who who runs or like who helps run the f- festival is uh, Tim Lee, and he he does the Alamo Draft House uh, mm-hmm. uh, movie theaters. So if you've heard of the uh, the um, don't don't talk uh, in our theater that from the PSA lady who complains about being thrown thrown out, he, that's, <laughs> it, that's his movie theater. That's the one. Yeah, that's the awesome. one. Awesome. So, uh, so he found the lobster and he said like, I have to bring this and share because that's, that's his, like that lobster is for him is like the movie. And so I'm like, okay, I'll go watch lobster. I'm like, I was just, uh, I love the I love the movie so much. And I felt like I hoped they would bring it to the mainstream audiences in America, but I felt like, I don't know if this will find a place in America. Mainstream well, it America. made it, it made it to our local art house. We're out in the burbs. So that was actually something of an accomplishment, yeah. but, um, yeah, I think the thing it, it it falls into that very narrow category of like people like Lars von Trier and mm-hmm. things like Nymphomaniac, where it's really kind of director versus audience, mm-hmm. and and it's just like you know I am not here to 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 please you, <laughs> right. you know, right? You know, you just sit in that seat, and I'm just going to smack you around, right. and then like light up a cigarillo and and walk away <laughs> after I'm done, and had that feel, and I felt like it sort of. It may have unseated the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover mm-hmm. for like the quintessential, you know, just kind of like, like, like 
just slap you in the face art film kind of a thing, you know. Right. <laughs> but but it um, but man, I can't stop thinking about it. You yeah. gotta give props to anything that you can't stop thinking about. Yeah, I think um, I think that I just this movie is like it does not like like if you if you don't want to follow along, it's 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 not gonna help you out in any way. You're like you you yeah. have to buy the premise. <laughs> if you don't buy it, then you might as well just walk out. You know, just, yeah. The, like, the relationship between you and the movie, it's, it's kind of, it's, um, codependent. It's, it's like a, it's like a very unhealthy relationship. <laughs> Which is about, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Why are you still living with that movie? Why have you not divorced that movie? <laughs> is oh. that movie treating you well? No. And you're still sitting here. <laughs> oh man. It's kind of great though. Yeah. Yeah. That was the probably, that was probably the best movie of the thing of the festival. So for me, it's my contribution is uh it's a horror movie uh slow burn mm-hmm. uh called february and i loved it uh it has a you either love it or hate it and um and it's it has a new name now because february no one's gonna remember february as a title but uh, if you look under imdb it's it's really great i don't think it's come out yet but uh, do, you, do you remember what the new name is no i don't i look this i we have this we have this thing called the internet i'll just look it up real fast Oh yeah! I'll just kill a minute. Of my, of my <laughs> it's a time. series of tubes. I heard. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very useful. Yeah, but, you know uh, one of one of the one of the things I love about life with Ivy, my wife, mm-hmm. is the fact that we refuse to be jaded. Oh, so, yeah. like every single day, there'll be some little thing where we'll pull out our phone and we'll just go, "Isn't that great?" <laughs> you know, like you know, like using Shazam to pull a song out of the air. It's just like we refuse to get used to it. We are we are daily grateful yeah. for all all the things that you know. We tell our kids, you know, we never tell our kids oh, things were so much better in our days. Yeah. We tell them that that it just sucked. It was hard. <laughs> Everything was terrible. TV was terrible. <laughs> Movies was terrible. Oh, the man. phone system was terrible. Everything was terrible. Oh man. <laughs> well, well, there's another movie I want to talk about about that. I, I think that'd be different. But uh, Black Coats, the Black Coats' daughter is what's called now. Ooh. And I think it's a terrible title. I like February better. That's a but, strange name. Yeah, yeah. It comes out uh, July fifteenth, so it looks like so Black Coat Starter. But uh, it's one where um, you you have. Uh, for me, it was like you're trying to figure out what's going on, and then uh-huh. you have a theory, and then you test it with what you see for this movie, and it doesn't really prove your theory. Until like the very end for me, like, and so you're like, so people like walked out just hating it because you actually had to like focus, like it's a crossword puzzle, trying to figure <laughs> it out. And then I felt like great because I was just like, uh, just like yeah, it like it would not let me go. Like I had to go see what was happening next. That sounds pretty good. I, I mentioned a Greenaway moment, a, a movie a moment ago. One of our favorite movies, the two of us, my wife and I, is uh, Drowning by Numbers because because it has that that ridiculous formal constraint that um that the numbers one through a hundred appear in order during the film and you just have and you after a while you know what the story is but you're not really paying much attention to the story all you know is that 43 is coming up and it might and it might be a page number or maybe it's going to be on the side of a house or maybe it's going to be on a marathon runner running by but you know 43 is coming and that's all you can think about and I, I love that. That's so great. Oh man, All right. I have to look that one up. Cool. That's our favorite Greenaway. Oh, oh yeah. So I talked about like eighties, eighties. Like so, it's like oh that that sucked back, back growing up. But uh, have you seen uh, 
uh, Raiders, that the ad- adaptation of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I saw, you mean the, the backyard Raiders, the yeah, ones that yeah. the kids did? Yeah. I actually saw at the Museum of Jurassic Technology in L.A., okay. I saw a presentation by the director and I think one of the actors, Yeah. Um, and they showed the entire thing. Right. They showed the actual film. And, and a comic book artist, Dan Klaus, was, I think was said at one point to write the screenplay of, of a movie they were going to make about the kids making the movie. Now, that's not what you're talking about, though. You're talking about the actual movie, right? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so the actual movie that the kids made. Yeah, so th- there's actually yeah. there's a documentary about the movie. Okay, the good. Because, because like 30 years, 40 years later, and that they had a Kickstarter and crowdsourcing to finish the movie because of the uh, the stealth bomber okay. Germany did. And so, so they had oh, like... Thought- I thought that I thought they did finish it. What I saw was a finished. Yeah, thing. So yeah. So they have a documentary about that that includes all that stuff in it. That's out now. Or it's coming out now, and then they have the finished product. Okay. Um, all right. Hang on. All right. We're we're doing a disservice to your listeners <laughs> because there's like half of the people listening to this have no idea what we're talking okay, about. Right. So just <laughs> we'll just explain real quick. Okay. That that a bunch of kids mm-hmm. really loved Raiders of the Lost Ark way back. This was like 30 years ago. Or something like that, and they decided to remake the entire movie shot for shot in their backyard. And by do. the time they, yeah, by the time they were done, they were like borrowing submarines, having actual car chases. They went completely insane. They couldn't find a monkey, so they had their pet dog on their shoulders, and yeah, and they did it. They actually made over the course of what was it like five years? Yeah, five six years. They actually burned down part of their <laughs> part of their parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a a kid sized burden of dreams, you know. It's just like the, it's like they drag their ship over the mountain. I love that. That's yeah. so fun. But I guess they wanted to do a movie like a recreation, like a movie about them making the movie. Mm-hmm. But then there were rights issues because it is basically you know like a a reshoot of yeah, it yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. So um, but it's a um, so we just saw the a double feature of the documentary. Mm-hmm. And then we saw the finished product, like with the actual, like, oh, they they crowdsourced making of the of the film, and like, so it was really surreal because you saw all these shots of the kids getting older and older, like <laughs> like the eighties hairdo gets gets in there, right? And then all of a sudden, uh, the uh, shot when they got out of the get, get out of the pyramid, out of the uh, tomb, and then they have to fight the, you know, blow up the plane, and everything like that. So everyone's like thirty years older in HD. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's some scenes that are stitched in there from the 80s as well. So like HD, 80s, you know, then HD, and then and then and all of a sudden then you're back to, <laughs> to, to 80s. And so, oh man, and so so I think something things some things are better in the 80s. I don't know. Like, we live at a time though when when this can exist. You know, I think that just like something that is so in its own category that belongs to no class, no category whatsoever, that, that the joy of it is how long it takes to even explain what it is. You know, I, that's just like everything just fit neatly in its category when, when I was growing up and now, now there are things that are their, their, their own categorical anomalies. And there's something just so magnificent about that. Like, you know, like trying to explain some memes, for example. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's like yeah, like what is this? Like yeah, definitely I agree with that. So, so if you have any more movie suggestions, let me know. We'll just we'll just break <laughs> it. They'll come up. <laughs> They'll come up. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what 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 you what are you working on right now in terms of 
can you tell me what you're working on now? Or sure, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm working slowly on a book uh, about visual communication across disciplines. Oh wow! Um, so this is this is something where I'm seeing if I can distill common principles um, in all these different ways that we teach or learn through pictures. So everything from information graphics to data visualization to educational animation, educational comics. Um, even facial expressions and body language, PowerPoint presentations, all these different ways. I want to see if I can figure out what are the um, underlying bedrock principles of, of sort of best practices for teaching and communicating through, through pictures. Um, I'm calling it a, a, a elements of style for visual communication. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a, it's a big, it's, it's a big job in terms of research. I mean, I'm, I've been researching in so many, just zillions of different ways. But like I've been saying, it's, it's sort of like I need to research a very big book so I can make a very small book. You know, I, I want to be, be sure to distill it down to something essential. And I, I hate to draw the comparison out, but in some ways I feel like I have to. It's like, so how would you compare it to understanding comics? Because you, you do talk about a lot, of, a lot of the same topics, it sounds like, in understanding mm-hmm. comics to to this idea of this concept well yes and no i mean the thing with understanding comics is i took i took the subject of of comics and uh try to illuminate the, a lot of the underlying principles but they weren't prescriptive that's one of the one of the things that made understanding comics what it was is that it was descriptive not prescriptive okay. you know I, in, in the entire book really i almost never said and here's how to do it well <laughs> you know never came up and in fact, people were frustrated with me because they thought it was going to be a how-to, and they got the book, and they thought, "But Scott isn't instructing me on how to tell good comics from bad, or how to make, how to draw better manga babes, or whatever." Um, you know, it's like that wasn't what it was about. Well, this time, it, this time, I actually, I'm going to see, you know, just I'm going to separate good from bad for the first time. I'm actually going to say, you know what, this fire safety diagram sucks, but it sucks in a really interesting way, and it helps illuminate a lot of principles and. In what ways is it violating fundamental principles of the way we process proximity or size relationships or forms of representation? You know, why why does this seem uh, a little dissonant cognitively? Why why do why do we have trouble resolving these shapes, whereas these shapes would have been more more seamless? You know, how do we communicate much more efficiently? And that's so it's it's a very different realm because. Usually I try to stand back and say, well, you could do that. You could do this. You could do that. Maybe that'll happen. Maybe that'll happen. So this time it's like, no, that was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was wrong. Okay. This is why it's wrong. Okay. And let's make the world a better place okay. for visual design. So so almost like a uh, uh, better UI, better user experience? Yeah, it's very, much, it's very much in the realm of UI. And, you know, and I, uh, I recently got to speak to Edward Tufte who, even though, even though obviously he's not, well, we don't classify what he does as UI, but of course we all know that that's, in many ways, he was a forerunner of some of those mm-hmm. aesthetic foundations um, that led into that, that sensibility. Right. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean, like, that's, that, that's sort of the, I guess I'm becoming more of a crank, sort of a cranky usability guy. <laughs> I think that something happens as you get older, your love of good design is gradually, incrementally replaced 
by a hatred of bad design, <laughs> which is slightly different. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're much more you're much more attuned to all that is wrong out there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, in a sense, I'm. I guess you might say I'm looking at you know I'm looking for chart junk. I'm. Uh, I should probably hunt up uh, Jacob Nielsen at one point, you know. But but I think it really goes. It, it's good to go back to first principles, you know. It's good to go back to the moment where things were at their simplest, where the world was first being created to see maybe where we took a wrong turn, you know. Um, I had the pleasure just a couple of weeks ago of uh, speaking to Susan Kerr, who had drawn the original Mac interface. Awesome. You know, yeah. She's mm-hmm. the one who drew the trash can and, and the document and all. And and just sort of getting a sense of, you know, all these different eras that we've been through and all these all these ways in which so much um, you know, kludgy topsoil has been dumped on top of it. And, you know, one of the things that Tufty had said, which I thought was really interesting, is he's distrustful of the idea of compartmentalized functions and jobs, you know, the idea that, oh, well, this person does this kind of visual communication, this person does this kind of visual communication. To his mind, there is the message and there's the user, the, the audience, and you choose whatever path will, will clearly illuminate the information. Now, in his case, he often, he often defaults to paper, and that's, that's what he's been focusing on. But, you know, I want to I see if I can figure out, you know, why? What is it about? paper uh you know what what are paper's advantages and what maybe what design priorities that we've imported from a time of print are are now floating into a different realm in which things like scarcity are are no longer one of the the dominant uh design uh mandates you know scarcity was a very big deal you know when we speak of things like the data ink ratio we're talking about like how much can you get out of every square inch of paper well, one of the reasons you're doing that, just one, there are several, but one reason is because you don't want to waste paper. Right. This, is not, this is not the case with pixels, but we still, we still have that sort of that, that underlying, uh, those are our marching orders, right? Which is why we try to cram so much on every PowerPoint slide. <laughs> we don't have to. Well, I, w- I was going to ask you, like, is, I guess you're, like, you're going to say bad design, you're just going to put PowerPoint, you're just going to slide it all PowerPoint underneath. No, no, design. well, of course, you know, I, I actually present a lot and I've come to really like presentation software. Um, uh, you know, from the beginning when I started using PowerPoint, I'm using Keynote now, but we all know it's the same thing. Um, uh, you know, from the beginning, I saw it as a tremendous opportunity. I was especially struck when my, when my daughter started doing it, when she was 13 years old, when we were on tour. She had a seven-minute presentation with uh, two or 300 slides. And, uh, and she just understood instinctively that she could use visuals and that the words were coming out of her mouth. And that the visuals were synchronized to those. Um, and, and she had a completely different approach to PowerPoint that, that really neutralized a lot of the things that we think of as the worst in, in that particular medium. And I've been doing that myself for, for many years. Uh, I've been giving visual presentations that I can go for 400 slides and never have a single list of any sort. Very little text. Um, because uh, I, I don't think it's necessary. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think um, as a conference organizer, I see all sorts of presentations, and so uh, the one I ha- I don't see that much though. Like, you know, your presentation is definitely more visually. Uh, I guess uh, the way you the way you describe your presentation is very unique. I don't, uh, but there's like Lor- Lawrence uh, Lessig, I think his mm-hmm. name is correct, but yeah, he'll just yeah. like rapid fire like 
like slides are just like water, you know, just like, oh, whatever, you know. Exactly. Right. And so, so there's that, that style of delivery. There's people who, you know, made two, two slides and they're done. You know, they're, mm-hmm. that's all they need to get their point across. Um, but yeah, and then some are like in our industry, like, like code examples, like the demo time and so like that too. So, but yeah, I could definitely see. But, but where I think about like bad PowerPoint is, uh, I'm not sure this is your example or I saw it in your presentation or not, but like uh, the NASA Challenger, ex, ex, you know, explosion when they went go back and they figured out like what went wrong and Tufty, I think Stufty actually was on the team that is yeah yeah Tufty yeah. is a well, did indeed critique yeah. those presentations and he he uh, reserved special ire for the PowerPoint presentation which obfuscated the information rather than illuminating it now he expanded that into a critique of PowerPoint generally and I think some of his points regarding having one image after another after another um, are worth considering even beyond the, the the horrifically bad PowerPoint presentation that they put together. You know, he he has a much more generalized dislike for it, uh, which was then countered by David Byrne, who did his "I Love PowerPoint" tour, and you know, I'm somewhere in the middle. But um, but you know, a good example, if you know, going back to that is is you know, one way to explain my philosophy when I'm giving presentations is. If I don't need to think it, I don't need to see it. And if you apply just that simple rule to 99% of presentations out there, you realize that they're violating that almost continuously. And I think that's something where, where Lessig and I probably have that in common is that we, you know, if I'm talking about something, it's going to be there on the screen as soon as I'm done talking about it and I move on to the next topic, that's, uh, that image is going to be replaced by the next topic. Because otherwise, I think you have a sort of a cognitive dissonance that, that you know, think of, think of the typical bulleted list. Your eyes will drift inevitably to the next six things that you're going to be talking about while they're talking about number one. And you're always going to be drifting into the past and into the future because they're all sitting there. And it's very hard to stay focused on what's being discussed when there's all this other visual noise. We have this idea that we, when we begin a presentation, we believe that we have our words, we have the meaning of our words, we have our presentation skills, our, our facial expressions, our body language, all of the skills that we bring as a presenter. And we think now we can add pictures, right? But what we overlook is the fact that when you add pictures, you're starting at a deficit because you've just added a distraction. You've actually sapped some of your audience's ability to concentrate on you because now you have this other thing, like a dancing poodle over here, that's going to make it harder to concentrate on you. So you're, you're starting below sea level. You've got to have genuine added value in each and every visual you put on that screen. Otherwise, you shouldn't have the screen at all. That's why I feel like uh, bands now, they, they have to have a TV screen behind them. And I was like, well, <laughs> is, is that more because of a, a statement about us? Viewer watching it and we have ADD or the fact that they are, are – that- Aren't that that good? And we have to well, you know, it depends on the screen, right? You know, I, I think that I just saw I was at Moogfest. That's where I spoke yeah. to Susan Kerr in, in in Durham, and um, uh, some explain? of the presentations, you know, like Grimes was there, and I thought the screens were they they used them really well. Right. Um, and a lot of that is comes back to synchronization. The idea that you're expressing the music visually can actually be really exciting. Okay, can you explain what Moogfest is and and what? Oh, happens? sorry, yeah. MOOCFest is a music festival in Durham, North Carolina, um, in the wake of uh, HB7, was it? The, the, the bathroom bill that um, 
uh, that prohibited uh, transgender people from using the bathroom of their their uh, identified sexuality or, or their, their identified gender rather. Um, they decided to stay, so they didn't they didn't protest. So they actually had the festival this time, but they they were protesting in other ways. Interesting thing is, it's named for Robert Moog who developed a Moog synthesizer, which in the early days was most closely associated with Wendy Carlos, formerly Walter Carlos, uh, a real transgender icon um, at a time when that was extremely rare in the United States. So it it had an interesting... Sorry, that, none of that has to do with your question, but... <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, okay. it's a music festival, and they had, you know, Reggie Watts was there, Laurie Anderson was there, uh, um, as I, I mentioned, Grimes... Um, uh, Gary Newman. It's a lot of lot of fun people, um, but but I really like the shows in which the visuals were you know carefully synchronized to the music where they were att- attempting to express the music beat for beat. I think that's enormously important. Um, I don't think that these things should just be set parallel. And you see that a lot. I love music videos too. My favorite music videos from back when they actually made music videos, um, we're, always, we're always cut to the beat exactly, uh, rather than just having you know, some drama going on while the music is playing in the background. Using, like, we're, t- we're talking about using visuals as, as, a, as a means of performance and in, in, uh, enhancing. And so like, yeah, so when I usually speak, I usually find out that uh, you know, when I go through the run-through, it's like, oh, there's something I'm talking about. As a, like, I, here's a slide. This is what I'm talking about. And then I mentioned something else as an extra. I was like, oh, wait, I need to add that slide of that visual because people <laughs> yeah. are going to, they, they're not going to be listening to me. They're going to be actually seeing what's on the screen. So I have to go back and add that slide because otherwise, right. otherwise they don't know what the heck I'm talking about. So. Well, what, what you're talking about is like what, what I think of as the, the dividing line between two different presentational styles, right? One of them I call monkey bars and the other one I call magic carpet. Okay. And mon- monkey bars is where, you know what you want to talk about and you, you cook up some slides Mm-hmm. that represent different topics. You you throw those slides on the screen, and then as each slide comes up, it's like an outline. It's like you see that slide, and you're like, right, I remember I want to talk about this. When you're done talking about that, you throw the next slide up, and that reminds you of the next thing you wanted to talk about. And that way you can improvise, but it has some structure built in, right? right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so so maybe maybe it's a little inefficient. Maybe you go on at the mouth about this thing that you didn't need to talk quite so long about. But it, it's all right. It's it's spontaneous. It's fun. But if once you've done that a few times, gradually you find more efficient ways to say it. Gradually, as you're talking about this slide, you already kind of know about when the next slide's going to come up. And you know what you're going to say with the next slide. That becomes a kind of script. You don't have to write it down. You just you know, after you've given it a few times. And that's, that's magic carpet. The difference is monkey bars is like up comes the slide and you're grabbing on like monkey bars, right? You're, you're hanging from your slides, right? Each new slide you hang from your slides. Magic carpet is where you're just talking, you're walking through air with your words. And as you reach each new topic, the picture just slides up underneath your your feet and replaces you know just replaces the last image as you go and so it feels more seamless and they're both they're both valid ways to present but the one kind of leads to the other I think yeah if you have the same presentation I think in, in our industry if you go around speaking about it like you the more you practice it and you get more of that magic carpet feel to it so yeah and then it it evolves it evolves over time too you know you yeah you take things away 
but it just sort of changes slowly. Yeah, the most amazing one. I think it was a it was a viral video for a while, or whatever. But I, thought, I saw it was a some it was it was a seven minute presentation. But uh, the guy it was like sort of like a quasi keynote in France or something like that. And I didn't understand what he was saying, but uh, he was uh, uh, he timed it to a movie. He actually uh, made a movie, and so he had these amazing visuals. So they weren't just like static slides, or they weren't like videos on slides or GIFs, you know, memes on slides. But it was actually like this like trailer of something, and he was just. I was just like, I don't, man. It's a lot of effort to make that work, but uh, it is. It takes that takes a lot of rehearsal, and of course, something goes wrong, and it's like, okay, you're in trouble now. Um, so when I get back to the new book you're talking about, is so is it also sort of like design one one type of things? Like we're talking about design principles, so scarcity and uh, color schemes and color theory a little bit too. Is that is that also going to be in that book? Yeah, there's about? definitely there's some one one in there, and okay. there, you know, we're going. I'll be going back and kind of um, revisiting some some of those earliest um, design principles that, you know, come out of things like the Berlin School or, you know, Arnheim or, or you know, like mentioning stuff like, you know, pre-attentive processing, the pop-out effect, that sort of thing. But, but always with a very practical eye, you know, not, not in terms of trying to create some kind of comprehensive picture of visual cognition because, you know, that's changing very fast. Every year we understand that better and every year we you know, throw out the last theory about how it all works. So I'm not, I'm not really interested in taking apart the mind, you know, the visual cortex, but I am interested in just saying like, like a, like a carpenter might and just saying, you know what, if you put, you know, if you put the nail in like this, it's going to go in that wood more, more securely. You know, this is, I, you know, I always like to, to, to put a level on this before we, before we attach the part, that kind of thing. Because, you know, as somebody who works with pictures all day long, uh, I have a pretty good instinct for that. So it's so if it works, it works, you know. And even if the explanation changes from generation to generation as to why it works, how we construct that meaning mentally, uh, I'm not going to get too caught up in you know that individual moment of a research into cognition because that's that's a fast moving target. I mean, we're we're learning so much so fast about how the how the mind processes images and. Uh, a lot of our assumptions are changing pretty continuously. Uh, is there anything else you want to can you mention right now about your new book? Because I'm already excited for it. So <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, so. Well, it will be comics. It'll be it'll be in comics form, and I will I will be walking around pointing at things. Oh, thank but, you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the way I do. But um, but I think that probably it'll be different in a couple of key respects. So I'm not quite sure yet. Um, visually, it'll probably look. Somewhat different from the from the books like Understanding Comics. Yeah, well, I don't want to harp too much on the Understanding Comics so much, but uh, I know, but uh, but which is a great book. But because uh, like, I feel like uh, as an old guy, I just said I wouldn't harp on it, but I just want to say it. Just like as an old web nerd as as it was, it just it just Understanding Comics is a uh, a touchstone in terms of our industry, and also you mentioned in uh, the presentation you gave at the uh, control conferences that it also other industries as well. I, I feel like you know it, it felt like it. It just reached out. You know, it's a little like what ha- happened to Donald Norman and Edward Tufte is that what I found was if you take any topic, no matter what it is, and you dig in deeply enough, if you drill down far enough into your own little tiny area of expertise, what happens is you get closer and closer to the core of things. And, and the more obsessively you learn about any one topic, the more you find yourself uncovering fundamental topics that underlie many different disciplines. And that's, 
that's I think that's what Tufty discovered. That's what Donald Norman discovered. That's what a lot of people discovered. It's just that that passion for the specific leads you to the general, and I think that's just one of those things that comes up again and again. Um, and so, and it, at a time, you know, when the web was new, which wasn't that long ago, let's face it. Um, there weren't a lot of ur texts. You know, people had to reach outside of their disciplines because, um, you know, web design in 1994 didn't have a very thick library. Right. <laughs> Which is like one of the, one of the, one of the lessons I learned from the book was like uh, uh, new mediums are always judged by the old. And that's kind of funny. Yeah, like we needed old mediums to tell us what to do uh, with the web. And or it's like, because yeah. we were web designers, they weren't really print designers for the most part, but we, but a lot of print, came in and, and helped us establish what we, what we can do now. And so, well, you know, one, one, in one respect, that was a, an old classic design mistake, but in another respect, I benefited from it, you know, <laughs> because otherwise they never would have picked my book off the shelf. So I, I can't, I can, I can only criticize it so far that they reached into other media. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, well, and also like, uh, yeah, exactly. Cause like it was your book and then, uh, David Siegel, Crane Killer uh, websites and then Linda Weinman's yep. book. Yeah, I was just like, um, and I felt like uh, I, I wrote web design books myself uh, because I felt like, well, that's how you learn is like buy, buy books on, sure, how, yeah. how, on how to like design for the web, which is like uh, uh, kind of crazy these days. But because uh, now it's all blogs. All this stuff too. Yeah. But you know, one, one thing, Christopher, about that, that idea of our basing our understanding of each successive generation of, of media or technologies based on the previous technology. Um, one thing is that that's a very long arc. And this is something that people like Paul Sappho talked about, which is that we're not talking about three or four years. It can be 20 years of approaching a new art form using uh, certain you know, fundamental assumptions about the old ones. You know, the, it, it wasn't that quickly that we shook off um, the theatrical uh, artifacts that 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 early movies had, or or got rid of what uh, you know our our sort of radio based sensibility as we moved into television. It can take a very long time um, to overcome those things. Sometimes as many as twenty years or so. Yeah, I mean, we saw soap operas that survive like that. Yeah. Uh, they're surviving because they. Uh, I thought it was uh, incredibly awesome that soap operas, radio, survived TV, could not survive the. Uh, the lack of viewership, and now they're on Hulu, right? Which is just like it blows my mind that they're on Hulu, yeah. right? It's just like they're like they're on a digital platform now. They're just they're but they're the, this concept is reviving. And I'm just like, like whoever came with the, this idea is uh, immortal in some ways. Like uh, just talk about sculptor that concept of that. But uh, I felt like oh wow, they're, that's that's amazing that that uh, they're just finding new ways to. Keep this show going, and some suburbs didn't make the cut. But, but yeah. Well, but that's the old—that's the old shell and the yolk and the and the and the white of the egg. You know, like it's just that we took it all as one entity, and then suddenly it's mixing in the pan, and you realize, no, it was always about—it's always about the stuff inside. It wasn't about the shell, you know. And and uh, and that's that's the thing that why when we were all talking about convergence in the in the nineties, uh, I I saw it as as a cross current. You know that you would see convergence of distribution, but you'd also see some things that were aesthetically bonded were actually going to diverge into different things. Once once they were released from their original containers, you would find one aspect of a medium would be landing in one corner, and another aspect of a medium would be landing 
in another corner. And you certainly see that with, with, uh, with the moving image, you know, where, where the distinction between TV and movie was, uh, it was a technological distinction and it was a market distinction, but they were both aspects of the art of the moving image. And now what, what you see is as that, is that as that's uncoupled from the device, uh, now you realize what were the fundamental ideas. Well, there's the short stuff and the long stuff. There's the continuing stuff and the and the one-off stuff. You know that those were the differences. Those were the meaningful differences. Right. Is this like um like what is going to a movie theater these days? Like, is it is it going to see two episodes of a of a TV show or is it or is it just one long movie or like whatever? Because like because yeah. uh, like even like when uh, Netflix releases a show. You know, it is like one long movie, right? It's it's not just yeah. it's not a TV show anymore to me. It's just like I have thirteen chapters of this Daredevil's life I have to go see. Yeah, you know? or or if you go with the British and the Canadian model, you might have three episode seasons. Like you know, one one of our favorite series was uh, Slings and Arrows, which was either three or six per season. I can't remember. Uh, or I think of the Singing Detective going back. Dennis Potter's great BBC series that was more in that realm, and it really was like a movie event. I, Ivy and I went to see the uh, that sort of period recasting of the of the modern Sherlock series, you know, with Benedict Cumberbatch in the movie theater. We went to the movie theater to see an episode of a TV show. Oh right, yeah, because BBC did that for the Christmas episode, right? Oh no, it was for it was for when they were back in the time of of Sherlock Holmes, back in Arthur Conan Doyle era. And what's that Christmas? I don't think it was Christmas. Was it Christmas? Yeah. No, no, it was during Christmas time. I think they really. It was during Christmas time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, but oh God, I mean, like, talk about fudging the boundaries. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I was sick and I was at a fever dream and I watched it and that messed me up totally. I was just like, oh God. So, but, uh, so it's not my favorite episode because of that. Not because of the episode was bad, but I was just like, cause, uh, some interesting moments. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. And also Dr. Who, I'm a big Dr. Who fan. And so BBC has been playing with. Uh, project, like the 50th anniversary was in a, um, you could watch it in the movie theater, and stateside. Yeah. So, and that was when I was like, oh, "That's fine with me." Okay, I'll watch it 3D in the movie theater. Why not? So, but I want to circle back to comics in terms of of the limitation, though, is therefore, uh, you know, we have digital comics, which we don't have to worry about page count mm-hmm. terribly, except you know how much uh, you, you know pay the except artists. They often do. They do still break them into pages frequently. Right, but heart breaks a little. Every time, because when when it too much reproduces the structure of of a technology that it's no longer coupled to, that always makes me a little sad. Yeah, because um, do you want to talk about like because DC went to like twenty two pages mm-hmm. not, not too long ago. I'm not sure they're still at twenty two pages or not. And uh, and this is from a guy who used to be a DC comics fan, so like I, I just stopped. But uh, but it was amazing how much like the two pages they dropped uh, mm-hmm. affected the storytelling. Because yeah. it's like you lost a whole beat, you know, of of a subplot. You you can't have a subplot anymore. It felt like to the comics I was reading it was like, I was like, where's the subplot? Like, there's no. We really have twenty two. Twenty two is awfully short. Yeah, and you then have he, to really cram things in. Right, and I was reading a review of uh, to prepare for uh, talking to you today. It was like the review of sculptor, and you said you had three pages of two people eating dinner. And that's like 30 pages. You know, that's, it is. It is literally 30 pages. Actually. Yeah. And so that's like two Marvel comics right there. It's like, I don't know. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, so the limitations of the, of the medium, like there's print and then there's digital, uh, digital, as you say, like, and also you're, I think, in, if I understand this uh, discussion, uh, the argument, right, is this that because it's digital, we don't have to be tied to the print layout anymore. We just, no. you know, we just do boxes and stuff. And then the guided view of, uh, of like com- com- comicsology, is that right? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, how is that? Is that does that fix the problem? I'm, I'm using air quotes. No, no, no. The <laughs> problems are still there. No, I I think you know in terms of you know the the cranky old man usability argument for me yeah. is that uh, if I'm thinking about the mode of navigation while I'm navigating, something's very very wrong. You know, by the time I've made it to panel three on page one, I should no longer be thinking about how I get from place to place. And so when you have an ever-changing mode of navigation, when you, when you have some sort of guided view that gets you from panel to panel, but then in some way you are aware that now you're moving on to the next page and now you're changing mode of navigation again, that's no good. You shouldn't have to look. You shouldn't have to think. Right. Navigating on an iPad should be your thumb going like that. that this should be never any more than that. Never any more. Um, you know, I did a lot of comics in the early days, like 96, 97, where I would have like hundreds of panels just in a single scroll. So I thought, why bother having pages at all? Why not just make the whole, make the screen a window and just navigate through it? So I thought, okay, vertical, horizontal, staircase, whatever. Um, but there it was a single mode navigation because I was scrolling, right? So it's the same basic idea, even though they're radically different. The idea is... However you got from one to two and two to three, that's how you get from three to four and four to five. And that should be that way through the whole time. And that's how it becomes invisible because in a storytelling medium in which you hope that people are going to be losing themselves in the world of the story, the characters, the plot, the, you know, the environment, uh, the last thing you need is to be constantly yanked back to the glowing screen and, and, and your fingers on a keyboard. That's, that just sucks. And, and I think that a lot of the solutions we've come up with are kludgy. And one of, one of the things that just drives me nuts is that I really thought by the turn of the century we would have ditched the, the idea of keeping a vertical, my God, a vertical page on a horizontal screen. Mm-hmm. Talk about, talk about uh, appropriating the shape of the previous technology and trying to shoehorn it into the new one. That's that's criminal. That is so wrong. Well, well DC Comics had uh, digital only comics, right? Where they um, they just they um, it's, it was horizontal. Yeah, you've seen uh, some landscape pages. Yeah, beginning to do it. And actually, one of my favorite comics of recent is actually uh, Stars Digital. It was a Superman Adventures digital only comic, um, and it was uh, I think it was uh, illustrated by Jock. I'm not sure that's his name, like J O C K. Uh, that's his only name, but uh, it's like Share, I guess. Yeah, but yeah, but the digital comics were like you know just horizontal, but they went to go publish them for print as you do because they were I don't know what twelve pages each on digital, and they like you know one issue would be two issues, and so they would actually stack the blocks to make one one big you issue. Can't, you really can't have it both ways. I really you know we 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 took a bad turn when comics companies decided that they needed some kind of push button solution that would allow them to create for one technology for one format. And have it magically transformed to the other. You need to design for the device. I believe in designing for the device. Responsive design is all well and good mm-hmm. uh, for many types of media. Okay. But in comics, the shape of the presentation is essential to the presentation. It's part of the soul of what this medium is. Is, is what shape it takes. It matters with comics. And so um, I think it's, it, it's, it does violence to the work itself to, to think that you can just throw it into the meat grinder and have it, have it created for one form factor, one aspect ratio, 
in print and have it just automatically sent to like let's say landscape format on 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 an iPhone. Now you can if you choose you can just have every single panel be a square, have it relatively low res or you know in, in other words total res in terms of like how much detail you actually put into the panel, lettering large enough that sort of thing. And then yeah, you could have two across if you're reading it on the bus um or you know maybe four you know, two by two or two by three on your on your pad, and maybe maybe many more panels on the screen. And that's that's a design decision that it's not entirely illegitimate. You could do interesting things with that if you just make sure that the integrity of each and every box is is good. But it does overlook what I think is one of the most unique things about comics, which is the temporal map, and you know, creating something in which you're you're seeing a map of time where past, present, and future is all around you. This is the, one of the only media we have in which we're rising above that temporal landscape. All other art forms, it's always now. You know, and whether you're looking at a play or reading a book or, or watching a movie, there's just that sense of being in the, on the now treadmill, right? So, so I, you know, to me, the survival of comics is linked to its unique properties, Otherwise, well, you might you might as well watch a movie if it's just trying to be a poor man's movie. Might as well watch the real thing. So, so that aspect of it, I think, you know, we're overlooking that if we if we slice and dice it to the point where all we all we really care about is being able to shoehorn it mm. into a variety of formats. I think that's a mistake. But you see, that's the cranky old man. Uh, well, like, uh, I'll, I'll, well, you you've offered cranky old man. I'll offer my cranky old man. Is that uh, uh, I I have a I'm not a big fan of modern comics. I feel like it's uh, um, everything is, uh, and that, and I, I've I come to realize that it's me because uh, they keep on making comics without my like permission. But uh, <laughs> is that uh, I love I love uh, you know you, you talk about how you uh, we, we talked about this before you talk about this in interviews is that uh, the, the tools of technology that you have to make comics now uh, are, are amazing because you just uh, write draw something fix it. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Right, and as a writer, I feel like revising is awesome because I don't feel like I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm an editor, but uh, and that. Uh, but what I love is the original comic art, where uh, you have the artist, you have the inker, you have the yeah. word balloonist, and it's all in this page, this original comic book page, and there is um, this artifact. That you know, to get 24 pages in in the old school 80s and whatever what you have you is that. Uh, once the artist is done, once it's inked, we're like we're 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 in there. <laughs> you know, we're like yeah. this is what that has to work. And so that means like uh, editing, fixing things, white out, mm-hmm. bring it out there. You know, just like every trick in the book to get this to work right. And I felt like wow, the, there's so much manpower. Uh, you know, maybe creativity went to it, but uh, creativity no, went quite to a, it. yeah, quite a lot. But yeah, but it was it was a very it was all corralled onto that one rectangular piece of bristol board. Yeah, right. And I, I love that because I feel like uh, we're all in group. This is what we're building. And then, you know, you take, you know, photos. I, I, I don't know. How, like, I, could, I could guess how comics can, you know, after that, the, you know, photos and made into a book or whatever, what have you. But, but yeah, I love that. And then I see modern comics, which I feel like they're just, you know, exercises in exercising, I guess. I don't know. I just feel like, they, oh, we're just, we'll just draw some stuff here. Uh, we have enough room for all, my, all all the text, so we'll just have this gigantic word balloon here, and we'll have well we can't. I'll just have one big giant word balloon. We'll have several word balloons take up a page, 
uh, who needs editing, you know, whatever. So it, it's just like, just because we can fit it in, all editing, just, I feel like, you know, it, there's, there's no thing of like, hey, th- this artist came in, uh, drew this elegant looking page. We can't, we can't overload it with words. We, we have to edit, edit down the, the words to fit the beats. Uh, or the editor comes in and says, uh, this doesn't fit the tone, whatever, like what have you, uh, whatever editors do, uh, whatever. But um, for comics, <laughs> and so that, that, that's that, that's my cranky old 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 men. And then okay, uh, well, you, fortunately now, thank you, Christopher, because now you've given me the opportunity to draw back the curtains and be the and bring some sunlight into the room because oh. I have good I have good news for you. Okay, good. <laughs> There's comics has not just gone in that direction, fortunately. Now, what you're describing probably has a lot to do with the comics we remember from when we were younger and like kind of the mainstream, the superhero stuff, where you had, you had a team, you had the writer and the artist and, and uh, the anchor. These were all different people, the letter and all. Right. But, but increasingly, a, a much bigger part of the comics world is, is being done by people who are very sensitive to the problems you're talking about. And it's often one person. And these are, you know, a lot of comics for kids or a lot of parts of the graphic novels movement or, or the webcomics movement now has moved pretty far away from that stuff. Now, if you want to pick up the latest issue of uh, Wolverine or Iron Man with the 22 pages, you're definitely going to be running into a lot of the problems that you ran into. But I'm seeing there's been a really strong movement away from that kind of storytelling. And it's often just one cartoonist doing the whole job, writing and drawing, and and. They're, they've got more room, first of all. They'll often be working like three or 400 pages like I did uh, on this latest one. And they'll take the time. And they, they don't overload it with giant word balloons filled, you know, filled with lots of words. You may, you may turn those pages faster. You may be annoyed that you paid all that money for that book and you, you just read the whole thing in two hours on the bus. But, but, um, but the pace is much more naturalistic. And, uh, and the integration of words and pictures is much more mature, too. And, you know, I got to see in real time that thing about, like, as new technologies come along, you, you start by adapting the, the, the ways of the old. I saw that in real time because when we started getting those two and three hundred page formats, what do we do? Well, we thought, oh, now I can cram, cram in even more rushed, crowded storytelling and get more storytelling done. And it actually took a while. It took people like Craig Thompson to come along and say, you know what? I just realized I have all these pages. If I want to have 20 pages of snow melting, I can do that. You know? And there are times when the story really needs 20 pages of snow melting, where that is exactly the right decision as a storyteller. That's happening. That's happening a lot more. Much more harmonious word-picture combinations, more naturalistic storytelling, and moving away from the kind of the weird artifice that comes from trying to justify the fact that you just paid four dollars for twenty-two pages, which is not a good. Our price per minute has not been good in the superhero realm in, in recent years. But no, there's there's a lot of good news. I promise you. Like when we're done, I'll I'll send you a list of great graphic novels to check okay. out. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. Like just like give you, it's more of an independent movement. Mm-hmm. Like so, yeah, I totally agree because that's why you know people who can rise up and have that skill sets can make great comics that way. With and the tools are liberating in that way. Whereas, and also the ind- and the independents are no longer the independents in a lot of ways. What we thought what we thought of when we were young and reading superhero comics, we thought of the the mainstream as being Marvel and DC, maybe Dark Horse or something, and then the alternative or the independent stuff. You know, that was everything else, right? 
Well, now the real mainstream are things like Persepolis, you know, the graphic novel about growing up in Iran by Marjan Satrapi. Mm. And that's, that's in probably 30 languages by now, and it's assigned in classrooms all over the country. Or, or Raina Telgemeier's, uh, you know, graphic novels like Smile and Drama for middle school students, uh, you know, age readers. And those things are, have, have I mean, she sold in the millions. Mm. Now, those are the true mainstream, you know, and they, they eclipse... You know, like the latest issue of Iron Man, which is, you know, I don't know what it's selling, but it's not in those numbers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, that gives me hope. So. <laughs> There's good news. Yeah. I promise you. Comics are in good shape. Cool. Awesome. Well, I think it's a good uh, stopping point um, for, the, for the episode. Uh, how can people find you on, on the internet? I am, I am at the intuitively named scottmcleod.com. Okay. And thank you so much for being on the show, and I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Christopher. 